0: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays and songs like I have. Plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books is brought to you by Babo Botanicals, B-A-B-O, Botanicals, organic, skin, sun, and hair care for the whole family. I'm excited to be here today with Alyssa Friedland. She's the author of two novels, her first debut novel, Love and Miscommunication, and now The Intermission, out July 3rd graduate of Yale University, where she was the managing editor of the Yale Daily News and Columbia Law School, Alyssa started her career working at a law firm before moving to writing full-time after the birth of her second child. She has contributed to many publications, including New York Magazine, Modern Bride, Real Simple, and most recently, The Washington Post. She grew up in New Jersey and currently lives in New York City with her husband and three young children.
1: Hi, Betty.
0: Hi, Alyssa. How are you?
1: I'm good.
0: How's it going? Good. Thanks for coming on, Moms don't have time to read books.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. Of course. I'm excited.
0: Um, So for listeners who don't know the backstory of the intermission, could you give them a quick summary of what it's about?
1: Yes. So it's about a couple, Cass and Jonathan Coyne, who have been together for five years, uh, married for five years, and they are on the brink of starting a family. They are going to try to have their first child. And Cass, the wife, has a bit of a freak out and asks for a six-month intermission from their marriage to clear her head and think about whether they are right for each other. And the book alternates between Jonathan and Cass's perspectives on how the separation is going and uh, what happens while they're apart.
0: So I heard that the idea for the intermission came to you when you were watching your husband methodically do the dishes and you were sitting there thinking you could do it faster and better. Is that right? (laughs)
1: That is true. I, so this is my second novel. My first book was about a woman who gives up the internet for a year. It's a very different kind of a book. And I was waiting for inspiration uh, for my next book and knew I wanted to tackle a man's voice because I like to take on a different challenge every time I write. So I thought, all right, well, I definitely want to have a male character, whether it's going to be a huge part of the book, I don't know. I was sort of fleshing that out and thinking and I was just at the kitchen counter and my husband was washing the dishes and I feel bad even complaining and telling this story because <laughs> at least he's doing the dishes which a lot of people would say well like my husband has never loaded the dishwasher so what are you complaining about but you know this is marriage and we all like find our faults and complain about things that seem silly to someone else and I was watching him and he was like lifting every fork and like analyzing should it go face up should it go face down like this plate is oval and this one is round can they be next to each other and it was like a 30 minute process and that's just very him like he puts on sunscreen it takes him so long like I'm surprised he's not sunburned before Mm -hmm. he's done putting on the sunscreen (laughs) he's just very slow and very methodical and I'm just, like, a super speedy person, like, for better or for worse. I definitely am sloppy. I have terrible handwriting. I forget things. I'm a little bit more of a mess, but I am very, very fast at everything I do. And so I was watching him move the dishwasher and just feeling, like, this slow boil inside me. And I said, I'm going to worry about marriage. Marriage is so interesting. Like, the fact that it ever works is kind of a miracle. <laughs>
0: I agree with that. Um, I love in the book how you alternated between Cass and Jonathan's point of view, although I feel like I want to call him John because I'm sort of annoyed that Cass called him Jonathan. Yeah, so totally. <laughs> um, so I feel like I really like went through these six months with the two of them, and I got to know them so well. And I found myself really hoping for a certain outcome. And I won't give away the end, but I was sort of hoping for a different outcome maybe than what ended up happening. So I was wondering, did you try to – Push the reader sort of to feel a certain loyalty towards either Cass or Jonathan? Did you know from the beginning of the book how it was going to unfold or did it just, was it one of these things where, you know, the book just like wrote itself as you went along?
1: The book definitely wrote itself. I don't outline in general because it's just not my style of writing. I feel like it really tramples on my creativity when I feel sort of stuck to a script and of course you can change your outline. It's not like you're, you know, under a legal contract. Stick to it, but the whole construct of deciding how a book is going to go before I really feel the character is just antithetical to the way that I write. And I also don't write mysteries, so it's, like, not, I think, as essential to, you know, follow a specific formula. Um, so I really felt my way through the book. I think I really wanted to have a very evocative book, a book that, like, makes people feel things very strongly and very deeply. So, yes, I wanted moments where the reader wanted to, like, strangle cats and, like, tell her, you know, just want to tell her off as though she was a real person, a friend you just wanted to give a good shake to and say, what are you doing? But then find themselves a 100 pages later all of a sudden feeling... Tremendous sympathy for her and, and, and almost forgetting how angry they were at her, you know, a 100 pages ago. And the same sort of journey with Jonathan where you're like, this guy's so nice. Like, why is she giving him such a hard time? And then you're like, actually, it's a little more complicated than I thought he was. And I wanted an outcome. Obviously, I don't want to give it away. And I know you don't want to give away any spoilers. But I wanted an outcome that I could picture a book club debating, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. having people feel like, I'm a thousand percent thrilled this is what I wanted all along, and other people saying the exact opposite and just getting a little heated over that.
0: Totally. I finished the book and I was sitting here and I was like, I want to talk to somebody about this. <laughs> like,
1: who can I talk right, to about yeah, that's, this? That was definitely, you know, what I wanted. So hopefully, you know, now that the book will be out in the world, you know, there'll be people to chat with about
0: it. Excellent. No, I'm sure a million people are going to be reading it. I just meant at that particular moment, you know, in, at that moment, yeah. in my bedroom.
1: <laughs> but Most people I talked to, my early readers, have, were happy with the outcome. So I'm like very interested that it was not the outcome you wanted. Like I'm very excited to, you know, offline we'll, we'll connect on that. You okay. Know, like spoiler. <laughs> not that I didn't like
0: it. Just I mean, I loved the book. I I just got so invested in it. Like I couldn't believe how much. Like I got. I just got so into your characters. <laughs> anyway, I was just thank really, you. No, it's I'm okay. so happy. That's no, like what, <laughs> exactly what I
1: want to hear. I really. <laughs> tried my best to create, like, extremely three-dimensional characters. You you really did.
0: I was, like, um, yeah, I was really, uh, I feel like I know these people now, and, like, I should see them on the street or something. Um, you, uh, You put a lot of emphasis in the book on how Cass and Jonathan came from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Jonathan is this traditional then you're going Wasp and Cass, whose mother lives at a Motel 6, basically. So how, how do you think their backgrounds were so relevant to their stories? And do you think it's a big stumbling block in a relationship to come from different backgrounds like that?
1: I think, yes, I really wanted to tackle that because it's kind of like an elephant in the room. I mean, often people from different backgrounds don't even meet that easily, but college really is somewhat of a melting pot where people, well, certainly in high school, like you're kind of, it's typically very heter- um, homogeneous, you know, when you're with people who are very similar to you. And then college, while it can be a melting pot, it can also be you stick to what you're familiar with. Um, I mean, I went to private school and then I went off to college and I tended, socially I was connecting and it seemed like more often than not, those people also went to private school. But I certainly encountered people that were, different than me, and Kat and Jonathan first meet in college, and it's kind of the first time for both of them that they are connecting with people different from them, and I think it can be a great advantage to a relationship to come from different backgrounds, certainly great for when you have children that you can bring two different experiences to the table, but there are, it's impossible, and it would be disingenuous to ignore the differences, because there are subtle ways that they offend the other, like Mm -hmm. Jonathan wants to feel that he is Above caring about, you know, how much money somebody has and this and that, you know, but there are little things like his his privileged upbringing, he's just used to having a housekeeper. Like, that's just, you know, yeah. that's just the way things were for him growing up. And so it's like, he can't even almost conceive of a different way. Like, he knows intellectually, the smart guy, he knows intellectually Cass grew up really poor. She was, you know, her and her mom were addicted from different homes, and it was really, really rough, and she couldn't have birthday parties and things like other children, but it's different, like, knowing it, and then there's different living it, you know, and there's like a, a flashback scene where Cass is um, at dinner, I think it's Christmas dinner, with um Christmas or Thanksgiving dinner with Jonathan's family and his father is complaining about some resort, offering some deals, and it's, like, attracting, like, a different element, you know? And it's, you know, it's not even Jonathan saying it, and she just feels wounded, and she's self-conscious. And the flip side is, like, she holds it against Jonathan that he never had to struggle. Like, it's not his fault that he was right. born into a very comfortable family, and yet, you know, she finds herself frustrated that he's, like, you know really never known what it's like to, you know, watch your mother's credit card get cut in half. And the thing, you know, the other indignity is that she had to suffer. So I think that there can be many, many successful relationships where people come from different backgrounds. In fact, one of my points in the book is that nobody comes from the same background. Even if you grew up in the same town, There are just everybody's parents' marriage was different. Everybody's life experiences are different even when you are more homogeneous socioeconomically. But these differences are pretty stark, and I think that the book tries to say that much as we'd like to ignore the differences, it's pretty much impossible not to.
0: Right.
1: I mean, it's it's impossible to ignore them, you know. There's just too many differences they had growing up that it, it leads to inevitable conflict.
0: So when Cass tells Jonathan about the break, she's upset originally that he doesn't think she could be requesting it because she's seeing someone else and that he believes her right away when she says the break is not about another guy. And you write from Cass's viewpoint and say, why didn't he picture some greasy tennis instructor in white shorts wetting her whistle? Maybe he believed she was more complex than a cliché, though that was optimistic. So what do you make of that cliché, and why did Cass get so upset then? I
1: think she just really wants to see herself as, like, appealing, you know, and I think that, you know, she wants him to feel that jealousy that there's some guy who's better looking than him and more attractive than him, you know, that's getting her excited because their sex life is not great anymore. They're tired. They've been together for five years. I mean, like, the sex is not the same as when they first got together and I think a part of her kind of wanted him to have, like, a surge of jealousy and feel like, who's better than me? Like, who's more, you know, sexy and attractive to you than I am? And he doesn't seem to, like, fall into that. He, he seems to believe her and take what she says at face value, and she sort of expected that he would, you know, be overcome with a jealousy. And when he's not, she, again, she's a very insecure person, and she's like, why doesn't he feel like someone else is into me? Right. You know? Like, right. I, that's where she expected his mind to go, that, like, She's a pretty, she's very pretty. She's very interesting. Like, of course, other, you know, another man would be interested in her. He doesn't go there right away. And she's almost disappointed.
0: And you, you continue with the tennis, uh, the tennis themes later. And you say um, about, you say, they were living in a no man's land relationship wise, the place on the tennis court where you miss every shot. The purgatory seemed to be working for the time being, but only a fool would think it could continue that way indefinitely. So are you a big yeah. tennis fan? What's with all the tennis stuff?
1: Um, I like the you know sort of association um, with tennis and Jonathan's upbringing, the tennis club. and yeah, I love tennis. <laughs> I do.
0: me too. I'm a, big, I'm a big fan. that's why I'm asking the question. Um,
1: yeah, no, I love tennis. I'm not actually good, but I love to watch it and I'm like very out of shape and I've tried to play tennis recently and realized that it uses completely different muscles than like you could go to the gym every day, but then you go to tennis. And you're ter- I mean, for me, I was, I was out of breath in five minutes and I thought, well, how is that possible? I go to the gym all the time. It's really different. I really respect, um, tennis players and I just find it to be like a pretty sexy sport, I guess.
0: <laughs> I, I married a, a former tennis pro, so I'm particularly invested in this.
1: <laughs> oh my God. So. Like a, a college player or like how? Yeah, he was a he
0: was a coach. He like coached people on the tour and, uh, it was great. So anyway, so I'm, I'm taking it's your...
1: It's very sexy. Yeah, no, I like... I'm into tennis players. I mean, like Nadal. I'm like, I just go, yeah, I'm into them. <laughs> Federer is like my number one. You know, I like... I just go on Google and I stare at pictures of him.
0: Yeah, it's Wimbledon's going on now. I got to check him out.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. So yeah, I'm I sorry. Love
0: anyway, not to uh, veer off. Um, anyway, um, so you got married when you were 25, which for these days is like pretty young. So is there any of this super which young, is super young? Which is I know. <laughs> how much, if any of this is sort of autobiographical? I mean, Did you I'd ever I'm young wonder? for New
1: York. I mean, I. I think yeah. I mean, I was. I forget what it's called—the amygdala or like whatever part of the brain controls decision making. Some neurologist was just saying like that. You know. You um, that like the part of your brain that controls decision making isn't even fully developed. I think you're 25 until you're 25 or you're 26, which is why like a lot of bad stuff happens in college and a lot of bad decisions. You know, because that part of the brain is just not as developed as like the analytical part that's you know doing math equations. And I said so my husband was 29, so he was you know he went into it fully formed. But I guess you know <laughs> he went into it with his, his decision making powers intact. But I. Feel like I was very young, and I honestly think it was just so far. I mean listen, you know the the future is long, and who knows, like you know, but for right now, things are great, but I feel almost like like I won the lottery in a way that because we dated for a very short amount of time. I was extremely young, I was twenty three when we met, and the fact that it's working, I think is really nothing short of a miracle because I barely knew myself, you know when we got together, right. So I feel lucky that it's going well so far.
0: And I think he must be pretty pretty uh laid back in part. I the the essay he wrote recently for the on parenting column in the Washington Post, which was called We Were Drowning in Diapers and Scheduling Sex, but then we got our groove back. It was a great article, by the way, everybody listening should definitely read it. It's online in the Washington Post. Um, you talked you about so after um after giving away all your baby stuff in your home now that the kids are out of the baby phase, you said you were so ecstatic, and you said it helped revive your relationship, revive your relationship with your husband. You wrote that life still wasn't perfect, but you wrote we aren't tired every minute of every day. We are a couple, not just parents of the same children. Best of all, we have sex in the morning sometimes spontaneously. So I'm sure um, you know many parents can relate to that feeling of being in the weeds with the with the kids, and you know the bedroom being a revolving door of kids in the night and everything. Um, And how, you know, first of all, just how does your husband feel about you talking about this personal stuff with him? And then maybe talk a Uh little about how your life has changed with your kids getting a little bit older.
1: Well, he was completely fine with the article. He's a very laid-back person. Like, almost there are times I'm like, is there a pulse? Like, what, like, some of my friends who know him really, really well are like, what is going to get him angry? Like, let's make a game where we just try to, like, ruffle his feathers because he's so calm and collected and I'm not like that at all and I think that's a humongous part of the attraction. I mean, there are times like, you know, I know you've got kids obviously and like, there are times like they go in for a medical test and like probably 99% everything's going to be fine and there's a 1% chance that you're going to hear something really horrible. Well, all I can fixate on is the 1% and that feeling until I get the call from the doctor, blood work is fine, everything is fine and all he can focus on is the 99% and just the like how, like, it is so unlikely that something could be wrong, but how could you even be upset in advance? Like, he is just a very calm person, and that is a massive part of, like, what I find sexy and attractive about him. I'm, like, amazed by him. You know, and it's not something that he works at. It's just because if it was something he worked at, I would try to work at it, too, and I would try to change myself. I think this is just how he is. He was born this way. His mother's like that. She's very calm. He's very calm. It's in the DNA. And so I don't even really bother to like, you know, other than popping an occasional pill to calm down like a Van every now and then, you know, <laughs> I just accept that this is who I am. I'm a nervous person. He's calm and he's very, um, he doesn't really mind, you know, like that I put that article out there because you know what, hey, now the world knows. We have sex in the morning, so, you know, <laughs> you're feeling pretty good about what I put out there. But it is really true. I mean, other people feel completely differently about this. I have to say, I mentioned one friend in the article, but she's not the only one. I have a lot of friends that really, like, quote-unquote, went through a mourning period when they, when the baby stage ended. They sobbed and sobbed when they, you know, left their, you know, they did their last walk out of preschool and it was kindergarten or the time, you know, when they any sort of major milestone that indicated that they are no longer, you know, parents of babies, and they, you know, love, like, all the grammatical mistakes that their kids make, which I, I find adorable, too, but, like, then all of a sudden their kid couldn't pronounce a word correctly, and they're, like, sobbing, not a baby anymore, you know. Uh-huh. I just, I, of course, I love all that cuteness. My littlest is not even five yet. He's about to be five. So he's still, you know, this squishy, cute kid, but I'm really happy that I don't travel with a diaper bag anymore. He doesn't have of a high chair in a restaurant. You know, we don't, there's no special equipment to enjoy being with him. And he doesn't have really accidents anymore. He's a person. And it's made me feel, it's where I say it in the article, because it's paradoxical. It's so weird to me. Like, he's older, which means I'm older, but yet him being older makes me feel younger because I'm just not physically doing this, quote, dirty work anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, he can, you know, I leave him in, in the bath and he, you know, I can turn my back and and and, you know, run and answer the phone. It's not like I'm I'm there watching him in the little baby tub, you know, and um I can even say, like, he cures the bars up, but he soaks himself up. It's just not as back breaking anymore. And I feel also just walking down the street, not pushing a stroller in front of me. I felt like it was almost like, yeah, I'm thinking of like The Handmaid's Tale where they were like, you know, where they're covered in these like burqa like things, you know? I felt like that was the <laughs> stroller. It was like my identity walked in front of me, you know? I was behind pushing the stroller. It was like this image of being barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, you know? Yeah. And now I'm not like that. Like I walk side by side with my kids. We hold hands, you know? It's just different. Like people see me first before they see the stroller. Yeah. I feel free. I love it. And a lot of people I know also love it, but a lot of people don't and are really depressed and sad about it. So I think it's very personal. I don't know how you were when you, you know, got to that stage, but,
0: um, I still have people in diapers, not people. I still have, my son is still, I have a little guy still. So, um, but, um, no, I, I feel, both I feel both ways. I mean, you know, I, I feel, you know, I can relate to you. I I'm I get really anxious about everything myself. I have a very laid-back husband, and I'm super anxious, and I think I agree with you. That's, like, a really good combination. But I think as the kids get older, um, some of that anxiety goes away because they seem less fragile in a way, like what you're saying about the bathtub. So I'm with you. I think that uh, having sort of more sturdy, older kids, you know, you, you can relax a little more in some ways, but I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, Um uh, and you said somewhere that you you are like obsessed with sleep and you get nine hours a night of sleep and yet you have three kids. So I just wanna know how is this possible?
1: <laughs> like how do you yeah, get that much I'm a, sleep? I'm a tremendous sleeper. And so much so is actually debilitating because if I don't get those hours that I'm very I'm a terrible parent the next day, I'm a terrible spouse. This is again like I was talking about my husband and his calmness. I, again, I believe this is firmly in the DNA like I require a massive quantity of sleep. I cannot keep my eyes open as soon as I put my kids to sleep, and then I get in bed and i 'm often sleeping twenty minutes later so i 've no, i 'm fast asleep from nine o'clock nine ten so it 's not so much on the other side because I have to get up obviously to make lunch get them ready for school it 's the other side you know when i and my brain actually stops working it 's debilitating. I used to say things like, to myself, I didn't know myself well enough a few years ago, and I would say, all right, I'll pay the bills at night or I'll respond to that email at night. And now I know that it's not happening. I, I, don't, <laughs> I can't always get to return during the day, but I know that I have to wait for the next morning because the chances of my doing anything that requires brain power in the evening is impossible. I just, like a, like a machine with an off switch, I turn off and I fall asleep easily around 9, 9, 15 every night. Wow jealous
0: it's not terrible i'm just uh, it's 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 enviable to get yourself to bed i feel like so many distractions at night and everything um and speaking of distractions your first novel debut novel love and miscommunication was about a woman evie rosen who decides to go phone free she's just had enough um and you've said before in articles that the advice your husband and kids would probably give you would be to get off your phone So I'm wondering, are you like a phone addict or are you just sort of like all the rest of us trying to keep up with everything all the time?
1: I think I'm a phone addict because yes, it's definitely true that I have to keep up and there are the times where the 10 minutes I'm like, I'm not going to look at my phone. And then I have a text message from my son's counselor in camp. Oh, he vomited. You need to come get him. And I'm like, great. The one time I tried to not look at my phone, you know, there's something urgent that came up. But there are many times where I'm with all my children, everybody is present and accounted for and totally fine, and I'm still reaching for it to go look on Instagram, which <laughs> is so terrible. I, I, I don't know what to do. I feel like I saw that book, like, How to Break Up With Your Phone. It's got a yellow cover. I was like, maybe I'll buy that book and try to read that because... You know, it's totally fine when they're not around and I'm going through and I'm responding to emails, but when they're around, like, why I can't control the impulse to look on Instagram is a very upsetting to me. And, of course, like, you you know, we're around similar age. Like, we know we didn't have this when we were kids. We we functioned. Our parents functioned. They, you know, managed to go to a doctor's office, sit in the waiting room, and not have their phone scroll through. Like, they weren't more bored than we are, like, they, they it was, that's just what you did, totally.
0: and it was fine. It's so funny, I sometimes now feel, like, annoyed when I'm with my mom if she starts being on her phone, <laughs> I don't know if you ever had that with your mom, but anyway, I'm like, mom, you're with me, why are you on your phone, and I
1: can only I imagine, I definitely like, have friends whose moms are really into their phones, and it drives them crazy, I happen to have a mom who, like, never looks at her phone, because she's just, like, not doesn't have great vision and can barely see the screen, so she's not into it, but I have a number of friends whose moms are on Instagram, and they're texting, and they're, like, always checking their email, and it does drive their kids crazy, so, you know, it I, luckily I don't have that, but, yeah, no, I'm really upset about it, and I, like, I got to deal with it maybe this summer.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. So if a close girlfriend came to you and said she was having doubts about her marriage, similar to Cass and Jonathan and in, in the intermission, would you recommend she take a six-month break like Cass and Jonathan, or what would you say to her?
1: I would, I, would, I would recommend an intermission if, you know, I think therapy is very interesting, and but I think both people have to believe in therapy in order to go to a couple's counselor and deal with that. I think if... um I'm a believer in therapy. I think it's great. But I think if if one of the two comes at it with, like, a very skeptical agenda, then I don't – a skeptical point of view about the benefits of it, then I don't know how successful and helpful it would be. Mm -hmm. So I think both parties have to be on board. And I think that if you – a separation can be particularly helpful if you're a really, really busy, busy person and you're just so – just getting through the day is hard. That, like, you don't even have the mental space to – Take the time you need for yourself and evaluate what it is that you want that like the physical separation can be very helpful.
0: You said um Jonathan Jonathan wrote this. Uh,
1: problems, you saw in the book.
0: Has... Oh sorry? Say that again?
1: Yeah, hi, sorry. Uh no, no, I didn't well. Oh,
0: sorry. I didn't say anything. Okay, sorry. Sometimes with with Skype, it's not so perfect. Um, Jonathan's view in the book, he said, Life wasn't about choosing to be single on Mondays and married on Tuesdays or getting to be a parent every other week. It was picking a lane and committing to it. Is this what you believe, or is this just what you wanted us to hear from Jonathan?
1: In that moment, I feel like Jonathan is very frustrated. It's not what I believe, and there are people who are, you know, you're always a parent, but there are divorced parents who, you know, don't have full custody of their kids, and and they're just as much parents as everyone else. And there are arrangements in marriages where you kind of, there are, both people decide that, you know, it can be open or look the other way. There are marriages take many, 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 many different forms. That was really an expression of Jonathan's exasperation, feeling that Katz was being impulsive and childish in wanting to just have it all in that moment. That was really meant to capture his frustration in the moment.
0: Um, and in terms of just the process of writing both of your books, um, you had different publishers for the two books. Is that correct? Yes. Um, so how how was that process? Like how how did that come to be? And just compare and contrast sort of the two experiences of writing both those novels.
1: Well, I definitely. I mean, I, I not only switched publishers, but I also switched agents between the two books. So it's a lot of transition for me. I mean, the first time around, I I had a lovely agent, but in a very um, different stage in her career. Sort of like she had been, you know, she is a tremendous success, but she was like, you know sort of wrapping up her career, I would say, um, and I did not live locally. And I require a lot of hand-holding, as I mentioned before. Like, I'm a very nervous person, and I wanted someone local. And uh, so there was the Asian switch, and the first book, I felt like it was weird. I, I just didn't really feel like I had a job because I would write it, but I, there was no guarantee it was going to sell. And so when people were like, do you work? I would just say, no, I'm a stay-at-home mom. You know, they'd have to drag out of me that I was working on a book. Because until I had a contract, it just didn't feel real to me. So I would say, now I just feel like a more authentic person with a with a real profession. I mean, I always had a profession. Even when I was working on the first book, it's just that I'm a very concrete person. So until I had, like, a check and a contract, it just didn't feel real to me. And I was with um, Collins, and they were great. Um, and I was I had a very good experience with my first book, but I switched agents and she went out and shopped the book and I got a better offer from Penguin. Um, So, you know, that got money talks and they offered me a two book deal. So I have another book coming out next summer and I like back to, you know, being someone who likes things concrete, I would rather, you know, have a two book deal and know that I have a contract, even if it means that maybe I'm getting less money for the second book. You know, I'd rather just know the bird in the hand, you know, we're two in the bush, I guess, is what you could say. So I switched. I have a great relationship with my editor. Um, she's also a young mom, and uh, we bond over that. And my agent's a young mom. So, like, we're kind of all working women in similar stages of life, which, you know, is no joke. Like, that really helps, that we can talk about packing for sleepaway camp and having a child home sick from school. Like, that being able to... Send an email to my editor or to my agent. Say I need to cancel the call, or I can't turn this in. You know, Sam has talk-sack-y. I'm Like that's it. You know, yep. you're dealing with cocky. I'll talk to you in three days. You know, it's like a we speak a common language.
0: Yeah, I, I speak that language. <laughs> I, I get you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's to, really what,
1: helpful.
0: What? Uh, what's the next book about?
1: The next book is a multi generational family, a multi generational Jewish family on a cruise ship together to celebrate uh, the grandma's 70th birthday. Oh, I And love it has it. a lot of, yeah, there's like seven or eight main characters who narrate the story. So I was really into what I did with the intermission with the alternating perspectives. And I was like, let's add more people. Let's have a full ensemble cast of people, you know, doing this together. What could it. go wrong trapping people on a boat?
0: It's <laughs> like my worst nightmare.
1: Um, I know. I but, went on a cruise last year for research with my family.
0: Oh, my gosh. How was
1: it? <laughs> it was my work, my
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's that whole, like, being out of control feeling, you know, not being able yeah. to. Yeah. I,
1: I, There's I, just so many other people.
0: <laughs> um, do you have any advice to aspiring novelists out there?
1: Um, I think it's just a lot of, like, butt in chair, as they say, you know, setting, for me, everybody's different, but for me, setting a word count goal per day really helps because then I just feel like I can, I know when to stop, you know, whether it was good or it was bad, I got something accomplished, I check off, like I set out to write, you know, call it 3,000 words today and, you know, I did it, I can move on, I can sort of guilt-free go out for lunch with a friend or guilt-free go to pick up instead of sending my nanny because I feel like I got what I set out to do and that just helps keep me focused, and read. I mean, your book's all about, you know, mom's not having time to read, which, of course, is so, so true. But you know what? Another thing I'm starting to do to break up with my phone a little bit is always having my Kindle with me. So when I feel myself like getting that sort of twitch of, like, I need a little fix, instead of reaching for my phone, I'm taking out my Kindle. So I'm reading in very short spurts. Maybe I have six minutes at pickup before my, you know, kids come out of school. So You know, instead of scrolling through Instagram, I'm reading, so I'm I'm not sitting down like the way maybe, you know, we did 20 years ago, like an hour and a half, and reading a novel, but I'm doing it in short spurts, and all the reading has really helped my writing. I, um, I hadn't read a book in so long before I set out to write my first one, and now, because I'm in the industry, I read all the time, and I think it has improved my writing tremendously.
0: Excellent. Well, great advice. And congratulations on the intermission. I really, um, you know, I became so attached to it, as I said, and I really recommend it. It was it was a great read. And um, congratulations. And I'm sure you'll have lots of success with it going forward. And I can't wait to follow your career and see what else happens.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. such a good discussion.
0: <laughs> no problem. All right. Take care, Alyssa. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books was sponsored by Babo Botanicals, B-A-B-O. Babo Botanicals, organic skin, sun, and hair care for the whole family. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.